Good morning and uh, welcome once more, especially if you're visiting uh, with us. It's good to see uh, you here this morning. I can tell uh, from when we started the service that a few of you, your your clocks finally got you up this morning, Um, but I'm glad you made it. Uh, Glad we're here together in this way, and it's uh, certainly a privilege to be uh, opening up God's Word uh, with you this morning. Uh, But before we do so, let's, um, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word, your living word uh, that speaks into our life. It uh, really meets us where we live our lives. Uh, We desperately need your uh, revelation. Uh, We need the word of God to speak into our lives, but we also need the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't be about uh, an exercise where it's a group of people talking amongst themselves. We need God's word to be proclaimed, and we need God's spirit to be active and moving in our lives, to open our eyes um, and to uh, transform our hearts. And so uh, that's our hope, our expectation, and our great need this morning. And so uh, we ask for your presence. Uh, We ask that the word would be wed together with the spirit this morning. And that our lives would be different, that they would be changed, that we would um, be ever more um, formed and conformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. For we know that is the purpose that you have for our lives. And so may this moment, these moments that we have together now be to that end. And we pray and ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're currently in a series uh, on anxiety, uh, each week looking at a different manifestation of it. Uh, We're aware, uh, along with many in our nation, of the growing concerns uh, regarding mental health, emotional health, even things like prescription drug uh, the rising prescription drug and, and suicide rates, such things that, that, that warrant our attention as the church. And so we've been looking at uh, each week at a different way that anxiety shows itself and also how we believe the gospel speaks uh, to it. And this morning we come to the subject of doubt, uh, which everybody will have to deal with in, in certain ways. We doubt things uh, constantly as, as human beings. We struggle with doubt for various reasons. We will doubt uh, things ranging from uh, family, friends, uh, people close to us. We'll doubt ourselves. And obviously, doubt in relation to God is an important subject. Doubting His existence, doubting His goodness, His faithfulness, His power. That, that, that seems to be a constant battle for people, for some perhaps more uh, than for others. But we worry. Some of us are, are chronic worriers. Why? Well, because we doubt God. We don't trust. We don't trust, at the end of the day, His promises. We don't trust his provision for our lives. So we doubt. It's, the, it's, it's there. It's, it's there as part of the reality of, of this life that we're in. And so it's worth our consideration because doubt and anxiety will often go together. They tend to go together. And doubt affects us on a very uh, emotional level. Doubt is much more emotionally driven than perhaps we even realize. And so to help us look at that, I want to look at a story that will be familiar to most this morning, but I, I, I want us to, to give it fresh consideration. It's in Matthew chapter 14, 
uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 22 uh, to 33. I invite you to, to uh, follow along if you have your Bible with you or uh, in your worship folder, you'll find the text printed there. But let me read uh, this very well-known account. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I'm really grateful for the story of Peter. Uh, He's one of the most vivid characters in all of ancient literature, let alone in the Bible. We we come across him in a a lot in all four of the Gospels, um, in the different presentations of the life of Jesus. Peter kind of comes out as the the second personality, the the, the next key character. Uh, He also shows up in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in the letters. In fact, he's the author of a couple of them. He's all over the New Testament. But it's not just the the sheer volume of his presence that makes him interesting and significant. It's also the roundedness of his personality. We we see a person on many levels. We see a person from from many angles. We see him in, in his strengths and we see his weaknesses. In fact, we kind of see a man whose strengths seem to be weaknesses. And and. For most of his life, we see a guy who, 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 is, who is human. We see someone that reminds us, perhaps, of, of, of what we're often like, reminds us uh, of what we, at our worst and perhaps at our best, can be like. And in that respect, we find Peter a source of amazing encouragement. It, it comforts me. It's a comfort to me that Peter is in the Bible. Peter shows us what it's like to be full of courageous resolve and then fall flat on your face. Uh, To be uh, the one that seems to be so clear and firm and fixed on important principles and then disintegrating because of a bit of intimidation from some people that he ought not to be bullied by. Peter shows me so often what I might be like. In fact, I even, I even wonder if, if that's one of the reasons why, why, why Jesus chose him. Jesus chose 12 disciples to be particularly close to him. And then among those 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John. And then of those three, Peter 
seems to be kind of singled out. Jesus renames him. He was called Simon. Jesus gives him the name Peter, saying to him just a couple of chapters later on in Matthew, Peter, you you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus speaks about Peter as having a kind of primal role in the makeup of the church. He's foundational. He's like a, he's like a figurehead. He's perhaps representative of, a, of us all in a sense. And I actually find that a bit encouraging because it's good to know that the one on whom Jesus seems to be building the church is the classic weak human. Jesus is building his church, his great people, his global strategic people from across time and across nations, people who are called out and established by him, the church of Jesus Christ. What's it built on? Who's at the heart of it? A a weak man called Peter, a very ordinary man called Peter. And this shows us that God is determined, insistent really, on working with weak people so that he, God, is shown to be strong. He, he, he shows humanity you know, lunging for greatness and in so doing, falling flat on its face. And that God being there to, to, to raise us up. And that's exactly what seems to happen in this very story. It's kind of a, a microcosm of, of Peter's life. And it's so instructive for us in, in how we handle the issue of doubt. How we handle our, our, our weak faith. How we handle our double-mindedness and our fear and our anxiety. It's good that the Bible has it in it. It's so honest. You, you know, if, if, if Peter was trying to preserve his own honor, he might have changed the story quite a bit. But we have an honest account here, which I think particularly helps us. And it shows us, I think, on several levels what Peter's vulnerabilities were. And I want to talk about them briefly this morning. First of all, his temperament. Second, emotion. Third, indecision. Temperament, emotion, indecision. And these three things all kind of flow together. They all sort of overlap and interweave, but we'll try and separate them so that we can look at each one of them. First of all, Peter's temperament. We are different temperamentally. We're, we're all wired uh, a bit differently. We're all of us susceptible to different kinds of temptation. Uh, we get tempt- tempted in similar ways by the same basic things, but to, to different degrees. What tempts uh, you might not tempt me very much, and vice versa. The things that, that, that really are a distraction for me, the things that I really have to watch out for, they may not bother you at all. You may find that they don't even touch you or barely touch you. T- temptation affects us each in, in varying ways. We are slightly different, each one. And, 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 and you could say very different often. I've noticed that with my children. I've noticed that uh, with friendship groups. People are affected differently by different things. And, and Peter's experience, it seems to me, is he's often the kind of guy who's assailed by second-guessing, by apparently having his mind made up and then... Uh, being struck down with all of the what-ifs, all of the, the, the sudden new information, it seems, that kind of makes him suddenly rethink everything all over again. Some of us, we, we do that in our lives, almost pathologically, second-guessing 
It, it, it seems to just go with us wherever we go. We just take it with us into every day. Constant second-guessing. Constant lack of resolve. Constant lack of certainty and conviction. And that's a particular concern for some, but it's perhaps at least a temptation for us all. And knowing yourself, knowing what your particular weaknesses and temptations are is wise. Being smart about them. Being self-aware, being ready as a, as a result to anticipate the likely struggles that you'll face. If you struggle with doubts, and you know the source of the doubts that you struggle with, the sorts of things that affect your confidence, it's good to be aware and to understand those doubts and to think about them carefully, to under, understand yourself as half the battle. And to know that, yeah, I particularly struggle in this area. I notice that other people don't necessarily do as much, but I do. Well, that's at least helpful information. That it might at least help you anticipate the battle and, and to plan for it and to think through how to win the battle with fear and anxiety built around doubt. The second thing to then notice is Peter's emotions. Emotion plays a big part in this story. You can miss it, in fact, but it's, it's important to see that, that Peter's moment of failure, where having walked on water and he, and he falls down into the sea and panics and cries out, Lord, save me, it's important to know that Peter has not had an ordinary night by this time. Right? Verse 24, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night. So basically, all night, for hour after hour after hour, Peter, along with these men, these fishermen, has been out in the sea with the, 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 the wind and the waves hitting them, buffeting, the wind not letting up. They're against the wind. They just feel battered by this time. They're, they're not sure, maybe, even if, they think, if they'll be able to get back to shore. And it's been going on for hours, and it's been going on at night time. And Matthew's giving us this, he's painting this vivid picture, this vivid account to help us see that there's an awful lot of emotion here. Peter is exhausted emotionally. I would expect, suspect so anyway. And I think it's, it's worth us holding that thought because we so often fail to see how much our emotions can play a part in our levels of confidence in God. We fail to see how much we can be led along by our emotions. Our, our emotions can sort of control our convictions rather than the other way around. Our emotions can cause us to think that conviction, you know, kind of to, to think that conviction might as well just, you know, we might as well just toss it out of the window. Our confidence in God, our faith, our, our trust in God can be apparently overwhelmed because of a, a, you know, a, a range of emotions, a set of emotional experiences we can, without even realizing, be driven by our, our, our emotions. Because think about it, Peter here in this story has no new information at this point. Peter has been in the storm all night. And then he sees Jesus walking on the water. And then he's walked on the water with Jesus. Now you would think that somebody who has had 
these sorts of experiences, the, the, the tough storm, then seeing the master walking on H2O, and then to crown it off, you yourself doing the same, surely that's the death knell to doubt. I'll never doubt again. I'll never, I will never doubt again. Why would I ever panic again having walked on water with Jesus? And I think we perhaps imagine that there's a kind of, there's a, you know, a silver bullet of persuasion that can happen in our lives. There's, there's a moment where, where the reality of Jesus will shine so brightly that we will never struggle again. We'll never lose our confidence in any way. It'll, it'll never be threatened. And we might even be holding out for that. We might be longing and, you know, hoping for the day that Jesus will show up in our bedroom and sit down at the end of our bed and read us stories. And it'll be like, now, now I will never, ever, ever doubt because I had such an overwhelming, I've had such overwhelming kind of proof. And some people, even from a skeptical point of view, will make this kind of challenge to Christians and to Christianity. If, if God would just show up in my life in a way that was utterly persuasive, of course, of course I'd never doubt. Of course I'd believe. I just believe what I see. I just believe what I'm persuaded of. Surely in this story, Peter has got more proof than anyone ever. He will never doubt again. But the story is here to show us that it's not as simple as that. We are doubting creatures partly because we are emotional creatures. We're overwhelmed way, way, way more than we realize by the emotional experiences that seem to be governing this situation, the moment we're in. So much so that we can be led along by whatever was the, the most recent and the most sort of vivid experience. And perhaps we don't realize that, but that's actually what our Christian faith can be. I know this in my, my own life, and I observe it so often uh, amongst us as Christians, the point where I want to start to, to get hold of others and, and say, do you, do you not understand that what's, what was true about Jesus yesterday is just as true today? And the thing that's caused you to lose your confidence changes nothing. And it's absolutely the case. Consider how totally irrational Peter is being here. He is being irrational. He, he might think he's being perfectly rational. These waves are big. People drown in storms. I, 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 I know people who've drowned in storms, he might say, and, it, and it's going to happen to me. The waves are big and the, the wind is big. It's terrifying. But however rational that sounds, stop for a moment, Peter. You knew about this storm all night. You've been in it all night. And now you're walking on the water with Jesus. Who wins, Jesus or storm? Who wins? Surely Jesus. You know that. It's just overwhelmingly obvious that Jesus is greater than the storm. But suddenly Peter has an emotional experience that causes him to imagine that the storm actually might just be greater than Jesus. The storm suddenly feels more real. Even more than Jesus does. The storm feels more real than Jesus. And you go through this very thing as a Christian so many times. Jesus will feel real, and then life as it comes to you will feel more real. And we can be conned into imagining that that, that, that makes Jesus less real. 
Because the feelings of danger and problems and pain, the feelings of opposition and enmity and strife and trouble, they become overwhelming. They, they become big and intimidating and, and impressive. They, they bully me because they seem more real to me right now. And, and what is not realized is that we're not being led by Jesus. We're being led by whatever seems more impressive right now. Sometimes it's Jesus, sometimes it's not. On Sunday, it might be Jesus. On Monday morning, it's your boss or your peers or your teachers or your parents or whatever, your, your, your current financial situation or your health. That's the thing that's most intimidating. And this story is here to remind us surely that, that our spiritual health, as well as even our mental and emotional health, is linked directly to our ability to hold fast to those things that we know to be true, really. Peter has had no new information since he walked on the water. He's had new emotions. The storm he, he knew about already, and he had put the storm in its place, but he, he's allowed the storm to come out of its cage in his mind. Peter has allowed his emotions to rule him. And to be so ruled by emotions, which again is a challenge, I reckon, in our age especially, might be because we've, we, we've never bothered to, to, to construct a kind of, you might say, a kind of a house for our mind. Jesus has even talked this way when he says in Matthew chapter 7, the one who obeys my teaching is like someone who builds a house on rock. Someone who builds a house. Jesus uses imagery of, of building, which takes patience and time and wisdom. It takes being able to, to put certain materials in the right places and knowing how much of what you're going to need and, and where you're going to put it. People who build houses, they've got systems in mind. They've got blueprints. They've, they've, they, they've, they, they think in terms of structures. And God has given you a mind which works best when you construct it in truth. You allow the truth of who God is, uh, what God is like, and what God has done for you in Christ. You allow that to form a kind of structure in your mind. You allow it to form a, a strong structure so that when the waves come, the, the house stands firm. And that means it's worth time to study. It's worth time to think deeply. It's worth time to think through your convictions. It, to come to a place where you've got a robust understanding of your conviction. You, 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 know, the, you, know, you know what the Bible teaches. You become clear. Uh, you have a clear understanding of it. It's firm in your mind. You see, because if it's, a, if it's just an emotional experience, if your Christianity is simply based upon you having an emotional experience either today, yesterday, or 10 years ago, if your Christianity is simply located there, it's based upon, built upon that, my friend, you will always be susceptible to, susceptible to the next emotional experience. And the next emotional experience will challenge the emotional experience of having met Jesus. It will. It's, and so it, it can't be that you just build your Christianity around that. You need to, in fact, to construct a house on the truth, the teaching, the doctrine of the Bible. 
telling you it's worth your time, it's worth uh, putting effort into it and putting it together so that you can see, oh, well, this new information seems to challenge this, but I know enough from my Bible to know how to answer that question. I know uh, where to go with that question. I know how to handle that objection. Because no, that, that objection is based on an assumption that isn't true. And I know enough to know that, 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 that I don't listen to that or, or I can easily dismiss that, uh, dismiss that objection. That doesn't work. So, so doubts that come against somebody that's built a clear understanding and framework and built it in a robust way will have less impact. But that's, that's a hard thing to ask um, of our time because we seem to be too easily satisfied with superficial, quick, shoddy thinking, and especially when it comes to emotional experiences. So often we think something through, we evaluate it simply on, the, on, 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 on whether it gives us an experience rather than on, does this stand true against storms? Is this solid? And if so, I need to become secure in it. I need to stand in it. I need to hold fast to it and not yield so easily and so quickly. And and I say this because I know that this will be a challenge for us uh, in our time. I, I, I would dare you to imagine that this might affect even the political climate. You know, you go back a few generations to elections that took place in this country. Look at the way the politicians debated. You go back to the, the, the 19th century civil war in this country, and you look at how Abraham Lincoln debated with other politicians about slavery and how they would spend hours arguing and persuading and making their points carefully and cogently and patiently. And these days, we seem to be satisfied with literally a few sound bites, usually with a lot of emotion, a lot of accusation, very little careful persuasion and argument. We, 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 and we seem to think that that's valid. We seem to think that, that that's, you know, this is good discussion. But I tell you, the mind is capable of so much more than that. You are capable of more than that. You are capable of getting to grips with this book. You are capable, with the help of the Holy Spirit, of engaging with the truth revealed to us in Scripture to the point where you are so persuaded of what's true to be so easily assailed by emotional experiences. You're able to say, no, 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 I know enough. I know enough to not yield on that. And so I urge you to therefore build a house on Christ. Build a house, patiently study this book. Because thinking through truth will help you when it comes to the powerful temptation and challenge of anxiety linked with doubts. Quick, let's move on to the third thing. We've, we've touched on temperament. We've touched on emotions. Let me finally touch on indecision, which is... Kind of the definition of doubt, you could say. The word doubt literally means, you know, double-mindedness. It's referred to in the book of James. Uh, James writes about this later uh, on in the New Testament, uh, where he says in, in, in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It's interesting that he uses that uh, same imagery. Like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive any from the Lord, anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James talks about our doubt as double-mindedness, as being, it seems, reluctant, resistant to engaging our will. The doubting person might be struggling to be persuaded of something, but they might just as well uh, be struggling uh, to engage their will. Uh, Peter, in this story, he's coming across as someone who hasn't made up his mind. He's not made up his mind. He sees the waves again, and he's deciding, Jesus waves, Jesus waves, Jesus waves. Which one is the greatest? Which is, which is the greatest? And, and he hasn't decided. He, he hasn't resolved. I am convinced that Jesus, however scary, however big and nasty the waves are, I know that Jesus is greater. I know it. I know it. And I know that he loves me and that he's for me and that he's going to protect me and that I can trust him. I know it. He hasn't made up his mind, though. And our doubts will, will come forth from that indecision. That sometimes reluctance, resistance to deciding, is, is it true? Am I going to decide? I, I encourage you to fight off indecisiveness. R- remember what perhaps you've heard me say before. I got this from a book, so I'm trusting uh, it's true. But lion tamers, the reason they, they stick a chair uh, or, you know, at, a, at a lion, you, you know, the, they've got a whip in a chair. I guess most of us would have seen the image before. A, a whip in one hand and a chair in the other with the legs pointing at the lion. And the reason I'm told for this is that the lion can't decide. And as long as you keep the, the, the lion with multiple options, it won't pounce. It won't attack because there, there are too many legs. Which one do I go for? And and it's kind of helpful to remind it of this tendency within us to be distracted to the point of inactivity by multiple options. And I think part of fruitfulness, part of progress, even spiritually, is being able to make a call to decide. Don't stay in a place of perpetual indecision when it comes to God. Make your mind up. Is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Hold the truth, not to, just to experience, and be robust about it. Sometimes it won't feel true, but we know that something can feel untrue and still be true. We know that. And so we mustn't go by feelings. We, we must go by what, what's become persuasive. We must become persuaded, and we must hold to it, and then decide. Decide. Just a few things that are, are helpful, helpful practically. This obviously involves the focus of our attention. If, if you're a Christian, the Bible's very clear. You are encouraged to keep your eye on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him. And, and this is a vivid story to show what happens when we don't. Very often we're tempted in, in a time of doubt to fix our eyes on ourselves, to fix our eyes on our doubts, Uh, to fix our eyes on our worries in a way that becomes all-consuming. You know, doubt can be a very helpful thing because doubt forces us to consider more carefully and to become more sure of the things that we're worrying about. 
And so doubt should cause us to consider, should cause us to reflect, but don't let our doubts become the object and focus forever. Well, I mean, we can, we can spend too much time just looking at our doubts. No, no, doubt is a tool in our lives if we use it well. Doubt can be helpful because it helps us consider, it helps us reflect and think and come to a place of greater persuasion and certainty, greater confidence. If we use it well, if we use the question that doubt throws up and properly, honestly ask them and get answers to them, that will help us. But doubt mustn't be the goal in itself. And 21st century people, for us, doubt can become an idol. I mean, we imagine that it's all good and all wonderful. It's, it's not. Don't allow it to become the goal in itself. Don't keep your eyes, uh, even on, on your own lack of faith. My faith, oh man, my faith is so poor. I wish my faith was stronger. I wish I had greater faith. If, if, my, if my focus is on my faith, I will not exercise faith. Don't let your faith be the, the goal of your attention. Let Jesus be the goal of your attention. Let Jesus be the focus because that's what faith actually is. is. Faith is weakness expressed in confidence in someone else's strength. Faith is weakness expressed in confidence in someone else's strength. Faith is when I say, I haven't got the answer, but I trust you. Faith is when I come to Jesus and I put my hope in him. So don't concentrate on your lack of faith. Concentrate on the one who is faithful, the one in whom you can put your trust in. And cry out to him. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, submits to doubt and despair because he didn't keep his eyes on Jesus. But, but he gets something very right. He gets something very right here. He cries out to Jesus, cries out to them, help cries out to him, help me, save me. And friends, if you're in a place of doubt, and, and, and if doubt is causing you anxiety, please can I encourage you, don't be lazy at this point. Don't yield to it. Don't be complacent and imagine that your doubts are a good place to stay. No, they are a good place to cry out from. Get up early tomorrow morning and cry out to God and do it the next day and the day after that. Keep crying out to God and asking, call out to Him, save me, help me. I tell you from experience, times where, where, where doubts have affected me have, have, have often brought me to a place of desperation in prayer, patience, persistence in, in, in prayer and patience, and I've, and, I've, and I've changed my prayer habits, I've pushed through in prayer more wholeheartedly, and the result has been actually that my levels of conviction in His faithfulness, my levels of confidence in His involvement in my life, His, his goodness, His willingness to answer prayers and to, to, to keep His promises, they've gone up. I've, I've been steadied as I've cried out to him. He is a very present help in time of need. Call to me, he says in Jeremiah, and I will answer you. Call to me. Seek me. When you seek me, you will find, you know, when you seek me with all your heart, I will let myself be found by you. That is his promise. We're not just left hoping and looking around and desperately trying to work things out on our, our own, on, uh, you know, in a sea of doubt. 
Now we've got someone who's promised to hear us when we call to him. And many of us, we, we take our doubts with us wherever we go. We take our doubts to discussion meetings. We take our doubts to, to whomever, but we never take them to God. We never cry out to God. I mean, what a waste of doubt. Let it drive you to him. Cry out to him. Call to him. Well, that's the whole problem. I'm not sure if he's even there. I'm not sure if he's even listening. Well, find out. Find out in your desperation. Call upon him and see how he might respond to you. And the final thing that I love about this story is that Jesus in the story has been apparently absent from these men in the storm. This has been a long, long, terrible night where Jesus didn't show up left them in the storm. Where is he? But all along, all along, he was watching. All along, he was praying. He knew about their situation. And listen, all along, he's watching over us. He's, he's, I mean, there's going to come a time when there will be no doubts anymore. Doubt will be gone forever. It'll be over forever. There'll be no need for faith in that sense. The Bible says that we will know him even as we've been, been known. He knows us perfectly. One day we'll know him. We'll have a certainty of him that we, that we don't have in this age. We live in this age with the, the battles, the lies, and the double-mindedness, and, and having to fight this battle occasionally, and sometimes often. We won't have to battle forever, though. We won't have to battle forever. It will one day be over. But while we have this battle, what's Jesus doing? Jesus has gone ahead. Jesus is watching over us. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is trustworthy in it. Jesus is not subject to the storm. Jesus is over the storm. So listen, while we go through this age of struggling occasionally with doubt, it's good to know that he's over it. He is secure in it. And he will, sometimes in ways that we don't even know that's happening. He'll be watching over us in our challenges. Let's pray. Father, help us to stand stronger and stronger, firmer and firmer, Uh, not because we've become perfect, but because our confidence is in the perfect one, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.